Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Adam Wiener is the frontman and really the sole proper member of the band Low Cut Connie. A lot of great musicians have gone through his lineups over the years, but it's Adam that is the engine and proprietor of this fascinating artistic machine. To watch Low Cut Connie is to be dazzled by the high energy and what I now understand to be performance art. You know, that's his background, as you're about to find out in this. I don't mean to, you know, to spoiler alert, <laughs> he studied performance art. But man, it makes so much sense now that I know that. This conversation was so fun and great. Uh, there are a couple of moments where it seems like we're going to go down a rabbit hole of um, overlapping friends and not exactly inside jokes, but, but you know, the things that he and I have in common places where we overlap. Uh, you'll you'll hear at the beginning that there's a lot of mutual respect, certainly on my part. I, I think Low Cut Connie is one of the most fascinating and exciting bands of these last, you know, 10, 15 years. Great band. Cool dude. Very smart. Very... Uh, fluent in the language of art in general and his art specifically. It's great when someone has a strong sense of who they are and what they're doing, and Adam is just that someone. So it's really great that I'm able to welcome him to this new episode of Wheels Off, Adam Wiener. Welcome to Wheels Off, Adam Wiener. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm so happy to be here chatting with you. Big fan, uh, you know, and it's just great that we both found a day that we we're both not touring For that real. we could uh, have this conversation. Yeah, back at you. I feel like we are extended family just for various reasons. Linwood Kirk being one of the main ones. I love him. Great. Yes. And um, he's been with me a bunch of years. We've been friends for many, many years. And um we were on tour a few years ago and a couple of the other old 97s came yeah. to our show in Dallas. Yeah. It was. But this is the first time I'm actually getting to meet you face to face, which is great. I know. Well, I just I, I think the world of you as a writer and a performer and I just man, you're a, it's something to aspire to the level of uh, uninhibitedness that you embody on stage. Well done. Thank you, buddy. Big fan of yours as well. Um, and I, you're, you're catching me 
just getting off a six week tour. I just got home um, yesterday. So um, I'm still sort of processing just having done 30 or 31 shows Ooh. last six weeks. And um, it's it'll be fun to talk about touring. For, for the edification of our listeners and myself, actually, where are you logging in from? South Philly, baby. That's right. Go Phillies. <laughs> I'm excited about the Rangers. This won't air until everyone has decided who's the champion of the world. And then someone will be happy. Probably you. Just going to say. Well, it should be interesting. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to lie. I've never seen a Phillies team as equipped to go all the way as they are right about now. So, Are you a sports fan in general? Yeah, I am. Um, I've been following baseball since I was a kid. I come from a baseball family. My uncle was a minor league Philly. And, um, wow. you know, my whole family, baseball. Um, and But I'm also a really big boxing fan. And I go to a lot of the fights here in Philly and I follow boxing year year round which is a great sport to follow if you're a touring musician because you can sort of just catch up on all the fights when you get home from tour if you know what i mean <laughs> have you ever trained as a boxer you you look like you could box um i did a little but and i love the boxing workout that i sometimes do but my hands didn't like it and i'm a piano player and I got a little bit spooked about the boxing with my hands. Yeah. Piano. And so I, I haven't taken it further than just essentially a boxing workout for my sort of cardio preparations for touring. That's pretty funny. So I know you just came off the road and um, but I'm wondering, because it seems to me like you're somebody with a big engine and you're always doing something. Uh, what creative project are you working on at the moment and how does it light you up? My film, I'm going to show this off Your Your listeners are not going to be able to see this, but you can see it. You're the first person I'm showing it to. What I just is that I just won this award um, for my new film. I made a film called Art Dealers. Yeah. And um it premiered at the Richmond International Film Festival, and I won the um, Artistic Vision Award nice. uh, at the film festival. And I'll tell you, Rhett, like, I've never won an award for my music, um, but I've, I've been recognized for things that I did outside of the music business, um, like... Um, when the New Yorker named me pandemic person of the year in 2020 and now to be recognized for my film is so amazing because I made this, this is the first film I've ever made. We're just starting to show it to people and I'm just in love with the process of making films. And I feel like this is going to be a future path for me um, that my music has taken me into the world of music and film. And what is your role in the making of the film? I'm a co-director. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, the, 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 the star, I guess. Um, 
it's just um we started making a road documentary years ago before the pandemic and we shot oh my god a dozen or more shows in iowa and nebraska and minnesota all this kind of middle america stuff where we're we're playing all these little divey bars and um and we just started shooting all these shows and um there were some amazing things that happened um like during that run we got a song that was getting really a lot of traction during the run of our filming and we all of a sudden we sold out first avenue in minneapolis so on on the one night of the tour we were playing about 50 people in a bar in iowa and then two <laughs> nights later we were playing a 1500 people in minneapolis and we were able to capture both and then the pandemic like um derailed the project and then coming out of the pandemic i decided that i wanted to do like a stop making sense style big concert film and so we did that uh sony had asked us to do this commercial for sony hall their their new venue in new york and they wanted to film me on stage at this venue and i said can we use all your cameras and shit and all the, the audio whatever so we ended up doing this concert film and then we combined the two and then we went back through like 20 years of my hard drives of my performing career um all the low lights i guess you'd say and just built this little thing about you know what it takes to be an artist working artist in in america in 2023 so you see the show and then you see everything outside of the show and um yeah i'm pretty proud of it i'm glad that people are starting to dig it god it sounds like a giant undertaking you you must have had someone with like filmic editorial experience my co-director yeah my co-director roy power who's a wonderful filmmaker and was just bored enough to go <laughs> on this kind of like crazy <laughs> adventure with me um he really uh was my bridge into film world and um i come from a theater background so there was a little bit about putting putting it together that I kind of understood from a theatrical standpoint and a staging standpoint, but he really brought brought the goods when it came to how to execute this. 10 cameras and the audio and the editing and everything. It was it's it was amazing. Wow. That's that's a lot. It's uh it kind of pisses me off honestly, not going to lie. <laughs> you just that's amazing what are you doing how do you have so much energy and talent and do you well, ever get that I'm, that... um, I'm also doing a radio show next year which I'm very excited about this thing called the Connie Club wow I'm hosting a radio show here in Philly and we're going to be live streaming the the tapings and um that's another project I'm just um I have a very short attention span um I kind of uh I don't like to be idle I I'm very busy all the time I like making things whatever they might be 
I like writing. I like singing. I like editing, whatever it is. I like just getting my hands dirty and sort of punching the clock, if you know what I mean. Totally. So sometimes I make things that aren't good enough to put out or they're just for me. But sometimes I make something and I feel like this should go out into the world and let's see what people think. So do so you talk about uh, having had a theater background. I wonder, was there a moment? Was there like an epiphany moment for you when you knew that this was it? You're going to do music or you're going to be an entertainer. Do you remember the earliest moments of your dream coming to reality? I went, I moved to New York City when I was 18. I got into this thing called the Experimental Theater Wing at at NYU, which is this little freaky deaky little group with 16 students um, that is a performance art program. So I spent that year basically running around with barely any clothes on, screaming and pouring candle wax on each other and okay i'll be i'll be a whale today and you be an otter and we'll just be that for the day and (laughs) um all kinds of crazy things and while i was doing that ret i got a job playing piano in uh, a restaurant in new york and that led to other piano gigs where i was doing the billy joel thing with the with the tip bucket you know yeah and that led me to just be kind of gigging in new york um sometimes once in a while i'd be playing my own music but most of the time i was getting paid to play show tunes or cover songs or whatever country whatever and it became like my day job you know what i mean like music became my day job and theater and dance and performance art was sort of my artistic focus. And then I kind of realized that I wanted to stop, you know, studying all this theatrical context because it wasn't in my bloodstream. Like I, I, I was burning to just cause you know, CBGB was still around and I was burning to just go see bands and go to the Blue Note and CBGB and Siberia and the Rodeo Bar and uh, Maxwell's and Hoboken and all these just clubs. That's where I felt really inspired, you know, seeing uh, Iggy Pop and Patti Smith and uh some of the older blues and jazz artists that were still around in the late nineties, James Cotton, uh, et cetera. And I felt like that's where I really wanted to be, but I brought some of that freaky deaky performance art experience into the room when I did it, if you know what I mean. Of course. And it sets you apart. I guess, I mean, it set me apart in a bad way for, for a long time. (laughs) uh because i don't know you know we could swap horror stories but like the music industry has never been particularly interested in what i was doing and i found i've had to find workarounds if you know what i mean um i never got signed to a label 
I got turned down by every label. Um, so I had to start my own and that wasn't entrepreneurial spirit. That was desperation. You know, um, I had trouble finding good management or anybody that, you know, and consistent. And so I kind of like managed myself. I booked myself. I learned about publicity. I learned about radio and I've been trying to build my own lane because I've never been able to go right through the front door with anything with the music business to this day, to this day, I'm still in this weird little spot where people in the industry are always like, we love your band. We love your music. We love your band, but people tend to not, they like, they always say, I don't, we don't know what to do with you. And we don't think you're a good fit for this. And, so most of what I've done, I've had to find, you know, a side door entrance to, 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 to a fan base, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I very much know what you mean. Um, I wonder though, it's, I love the idea that you talk about finding your own lane, because I mean, you, if anybody could get, you know, the thing yelled at you, stay in your lane, Adam. Um, but you're like, what is, what is your lane? Like you do all these things. Uh, I love the the element of film that you're adding to it now. Well, when I was 21, 22, um, I wrote this piece that was like a theatrical show. And I knew this person who said, you know, this should really be like a stage show. And we did a two-week run right on union square at the daryl roth two so there was a show that ran for many 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 years a decade called della garda on um union square it was like a brazilian dance show right and it was so successful that they built a smaller theater attached to it and we were one of the first shows that played there and i wrote this crazy show where it was like i had my rock and roll band thing on stage and then we had all these dancers men and women and then we had these video projections that were pre-shot that they were choreographed to and then we had live video streaming on stage it was some nudity there was some crazy light show elements of it. It was like an experimental theater show, but it was all music. And we ran for two weeks. It went pretty well. We got some good reviews and then it was kind of like over. And I was like, well, what do I do now? You know, it's like you have that moment where you're like, the cavalry didn't come. Like nobody came and said, we're going to pick this up and take it to Broadway, or we're going to pick this up and put a lot of money into it. And about a week or two after it closed, I took a job as a secretary. I was a secretary in a doctor's office for three years. And I went back to my gay bar gigs on the weekends. And it was really instructive to me because I regretted that I didn't, seize the momentum of the project 
and say, I'm going to get this thing leveled up. There were all these people buzzing. There was press, there was producers, there was theater people all around it. But nobody, nobody was there to say, I'm going to take the ball and run with it. And that was instructive to me because I was like, if, if I'm going to ever have a career, I'm going to have to make it happen every step of the way myself. And I've basically taken that kind of hustle into the music business uh, inhospitably. <laughs> but um, I continue to just try to build things that I believe in, try to put them out in a way that has some integrity and hope that the the people show up. That's all I really know how to do. In a way, it seems like all you can do, you know, make it good, build it, and hope that they will come. I think that's God. That's such a great lesson because I know I still battle with that impulse to wait around and you know for someone to res rescue me, someone to come, you know. And it's the the stories. This this comes up a lot with me and my friends, and even on these conversations, the Nick Lowe story about someone covering peace, love, and understanding on the the bodyguard soundtrack, and he went out to his mailbox in his you know uh, bathrobe and opened the mailbox, and there's a check for a million dollars that he didn't know was coming, and like we all think, oh yeah, well one of these days if I just keep doing it, somebody will hand me a million dollars. I'm starting yeah. to wonder if that might not be true. <laughs> I think, I think it happens for some people. And I think in an older period of the industry, yeah, there was more of that going around. I just kind of think right now that the music business is so contracted and is stuck in such an old model, a stale model of operating that you really got to like get in your own lifeboat or you're going down, you know? Yeah. Um, and I've seen it and I've come close myself. Um, I just really like the amount of passion and love that I have for music is the amount of scorn and, um, you know, ennui that I have for the music business currently. There are some really good people out there, friends of mine in this industry. It's just, it is currently not in an extremely creative swing from the business side, in my opinion. So you've got all the, the external obstacles, obviously. I wonder um, when you run up against the internally generated stuff, the negative voices in your head, where, you know, the roadblocks we all put up to that keep us from being our, our best artist self or our best self self. Um, what have you figured out as ways around those obstacles? So what strategies have you come up with? You know, like in Back to the Future, when he's the, the, he's got the DeLorean and he's has all the like trash that he puts in that he's like, that's the fuel, right? <laughs> so that's my shtick is basically like you have to find a way. And I think I learned this from my performance art theater background a little bit um use everything you know if if the world is not giving you anything good if you if you are filled with doubt if you're if you're hitting roadblocks whatever it is don't just ignore it like use it turn it into something 
And I feel like at this point, I've realized that those negative thoughts that you're talking about, they're never going to go away. Uh, I just have had to learn how to process them into something useful. And I would argue, I don't know if you agree, Rhett, but great musical artists that I love, so many of them, uh, whether it be Prince or David Bowie or Tina Turner or James Brown, some of the greatest musical artists of all time, they were really people that had a lot of conflict, that had a lot of turmoil and were able to process their turmoil into great art. And that is, I think, part of the skill that you need to develop as a performer because if you just wait for a lightning strike, you're going to wait a long time, you know? Yeah. I love that. I, I love that. And I feel like if, you know, I've done however many 250 episodes of the, of these conversations and I try not to have an agenda, but I do feel like as these things come up, some things push buttons for me. One of them being the idea that artists have to, uh, be tortured and have to be unhappy and have to, you know, create, create problems for themselves, like, you know, drug problems or whatever stuff that is cliched in our business. But um, I think what you're saying is that these people had stuff inside them. They weren't going out looking for problems. They weren't, you know, maybe at some points in their life they were, but these are things, this is our way of processing and it's not glamorous to have these problems. It's like they're actual problems, and this is how we deal with them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And look, I grew up in New Jersey, mm -hmm. and there's a certain culture where I grew up that is a an underdog uh, culture, right? Like everybody makes fun of New Jersey, it's the armpit of America, you know. And yet, New Jersey has produced more musical luminaries than maybe any other state. I don't know. You be the judge from Patti Smith to Frank Sinatra to Queen Latifah to Bruce Springsteen, the Misfits, on and on and on and on. Like in hip hop, in punk rock and classic rock, on and on and on. Some real, uh, you know, trendsetters, some real groundbreakers. And I think part of it is if you grow up with this idea that you ain't shit and you ain't ever going to do shit, it gives you that little extra little bit of rocket fuel. You know, if you can, because I always try to call to attention that New York City as a mecca of art, the majority of the artists that have really been the movers and shakers in New York are those that came from the outer edges, whether it be New Jersey, Long Island, Staten Island, the outer boroughs and the burbs. And they come into New York and execute, whether it's Lou Reed or Maplethorpe or Patti Smith or Bruce Springsteen or Billy Joel, whoever. And you gotta have people that have that extra little bit of something to prove, they might just go a little further, you know? 
and, 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 you know, Springsteen always tells that thing about, he says like his mom, you know, treated him like he was Jesus H Christ. And his dad said, you ain't ever going to be shit. And he believed both of them, Nice, you know, and that little combo. And I think Prince was really the same in that he really, 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 really believed in himself. But he also was really, really, really insecure at the same time. He always had something to prove, you know. Funny, the way you describe New Jersey, it's almost like the opposite of a sense of entitlement. Oh, yeah. It's a, you definitely, you do not grow up, at least when I was growing up there, you do not grow up with this idea that you are bound for great things. There's a there's a ceiling that you're very aware of um, in in almost everything, you know, and so you're supposed to make sensible choices based on the ceiling that you've you, you've been exposed to. It's not an artistic um, mecca. It's outside of the artistic meccas that exists, and. Um, you might get some people saying, oh, you could or you should or whatever, but there's very little hard evidence that you're given to say that you actually are going to pull it off and that you should go try, you know? Oh, man. I'm glad you did. Uh, I wonder, I feel like this is, I feel like, I mean, obviously you are borderline a motivational speaker, which I love that. <laughs> and and it makes you perfect for this conversation that we've been having. I wonder if you'd be willing to try and distill some of this wisdom you're sharing. And imagine a 21-year-old version of yourself in today's world. What advice might you give that young man, that young person? Uh, that That's easy because I get a lot of young fans and young musicians and artists that ask me, uh, what should I be doing or what should I focus on or whatever? I think that at the end of the day, you should invest in your talent. That's the, that's the bottom line. If you are a singer, a dancer, a painter, uh, a songwriter, whatever you are, you want to work on your craft and you want to work on your craft to the point where you feel very confident that you can consistently make the impression that you want to make. If you're a comedian and you, the task is to make people laugh every night, you have to go out and bomb like a couple hundred times in front of <clears throat> hostile audiences, strangers in all different cities and cultures before you hone your ability to be funny in every context, right? And then once you got that, then when you go back to New York or LA, it's easy. You know, if you can kill in Omaha and you can kill in Texas and you can kill in Maine, then you go back to the comedy cellar and you know, you're going to kill. And the same, I believe is true for performing as a musician, what you put out musically in your performances and your recordings, that's the whole deal. Like you can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars 
in promotion. You could be very savvy at social media. You could be very, very gifted visually. Uh, you could have connections or whatever, but it probably for most people comes out in the wash if your talent isn't there, right? Your skill set. And so I usually tell people, you don't really need money. You don't need connections. You don't need a leg up. You just need to hone your craft, really get good, get great even. Get to the point where you feel consistently like, I think I've written 20 really good songs. I wrote a hundred bad ones, but I've got these 20 good ones, you know? And we live in an era now where people are really, really, really in a rush to become successful and promote themselves right from their first song or their first demo, which is fine. If you can do it that way, God bless you. But for me, I liked the process of getting to a place where I said, you know what? All those songs I wrote for all those years, I think they're awful. But this one that I wrote today, I feel pretty damn good about. And I like that I failed so many times that then I kind of knew when I had succeeded, if you know what I mean. Yeah. God, that's another thing that keeps coming up that feels like um, an undeniable truth. You know, the gift of failure, the necessity of failure. I'm glad you brought it up. That's great. And don't be afraid of it. Like, embrace no. the shit. Those gigs, I don't know about you, Rhett, but like, my 20s were a fucking disaster. And yeah. the shit that I did, so stupid, so crazy. But I made it through, thank God. But like, I, I played so many gigs in so many shitty, crazy, dangerous, hostile, weird situations to people that really, really did not want to like what I was doing. And from a career standpoint, it was lunacy. It was it was absolutely like not leading to anything. But from an artistic standpoint, that was my that was my punch in the heavy bag. You know, yeah. if you can play to six drunk people on a Monday in Toledo and win them over, then playing, you know, a South by Southwest showcase for 300 industry people, it's going to be fucking easy not only easy it's going to be kind of whack you're going to be like i kind of prefer playing for those drunk people in toledo that's what happened for me yeah. is i i played my music primarily for very out audiences you know in, in in small towns little bars little house shows little basement shows potluck dinners gay bars you know whatever whoever would have me and I kind of fell in love with that. And I think in a way that's why my music, that's why I'm kind of a cult artist now, because I don't care about what is cool or what is um, trending. And I've never made music uh, for people that were cool, to be honest with you, <laughs> you know, um, and anytime I would do sort of like an industry thing. I would do it and I would do it well, but I much prefer, much, much prefer playing out 
in the world somewhere to those people out there that are it's going to mean something to you know yeah oh it's so good man adam this is great i really feel like this is gold start to finish i think people are going to learn a lot from this I, I hope that young artists listen to this because i feel like there's just so much juicy usable uh you know actionable wisdom in the last half hour of conversation and i really appreciate you showing up and doing this thank you very I much i loved every second of it i hope i get to see you soon i hope i get to enjoy your musical talents on stage and on record for many years to come keep up the <laughs> great work let me know when you're in philly i'll let you know when i'm up in your neck of the woods and um please keep in touch my pal i love what you're doing i love it thank you so much All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.